Pursuit of Podcast, a purely guest-centric show focusing on people and organizations that advance positive change. Positivity can be anywhere, and in a time of vast discord, the pursuit of is finding those who champion its causes loudest. Join us as we sit and learn about the pursuits of local leaders in their community. Let's go. Hello, good people, and welcome to the Pursuit of Podcast, where it's truly not us, it's you. I'm Ryan Buck, Artist Development, New Leonard Media. With me, as always, is the boss, Mark Wilson, President, New Leonard Media. Hey, Ryan. Hey, how are you? I'm doing great, dude. It's the best day of the year so far. Okay, that's enough of that. So uh, with us today is Matt Morgan, Executive Director with Veterans in Crisis. Thank you for being here. How are you? Thanks for having me. It's great. Great. It's a beautiful day out. 80 degrees, Northern Michigan. Yeah, and that feels good. So if you can, tell us more about Veterans in Crisis and what the organization does for listeners who don't know, and how long have you been doing it? Veterans in Crisis is a small nonprofit organization. It's been around three to four years. I mean, really, it started as a group of guys hosting a golf tournament together uh, to raise money for veterans in need. And it was small stuff. You know, uh, somebody needed their transmission repaired or they needed uh, firewood to help get through the winter. You know, so they'd raise a few thousand dollars in a golf tournament, and uh, over the course of the year when a veteran needed assistance, they'd uh, jump in and provide it. So a couple of years ago, they uh, they formalized, they incorporated, they became a 501c3. And uh, I joined the board a couple of years ago, took over as the executive director. And uh, since then, we've been primarily focused on growing. You know, and our primary mission is just to provide rapid, targeted relief for veterans who are facing uh, acute crises. So it started really DIY. And Absolutely. this people who just wanted to help. I mean, one of the biggest challenges I face as executive director is, is that the board is a bunch of guys who played golf together, you know, so <laughs> getting them to kind of formalize and think bigger. I mean, helping more veterans is, you know, as big as it gets. So we've been able to focus and growing and diversifying the board has, has been something we focused on, but it's been a lot of fun and uh, it's an important thing that we can do to, to help fill a gap. Right. And you have a history in the military. Yeah, the Marine Corps. And you're, if you can share a little bit about your history, because it's fascinating, public affairs, planning, communications. You worked at the Pentagon, didn't you? Yeah, I did. And, you know, I, I always tell people I was, I was getting out of the Marine Corps from the time that I was a lieutenant. I, you know, just I came in, I was having fun, but the Marine Corps kept offering me new and exciting opportunities. So I had an unconventional career. I, I was able to uh, do a number of things. I was an infantry officer early in my career doing thing, traditional things that people think of when they think of Marines. You know, I had the opportunity to work. Uh, I led the, the first high-definition combat camera team to shoot in combat during the invasion. Iraq in 2003. Um, ended up, I spent several years in Los Angeles working as the Marine Corps motion picture liaison and then finished out. Uh, I spent several years at the Pentagon as well later in my career. Wow. Because looking at your LinkedIn profile, it's intimidating when it says uh, Director of Public Affairs, Joint Task Force, Horn of Africa. That stands out. Right. I mean, the Horn of Africa, I, I lived in a country that they're up to that point, I'd never even heard of in Djibouti, Africa, and the Horn of Africa, right off the, the northern edge of Somalia in the Straits of Hormuz. And we wouldn't have been there if it wasn't for, you know, post 9 11 right. presence. But it was a great opportunity to uh, get in there, learn, live in a former French colony, right. um, you know, work across the border from a former Italian colony. Uh, you learn a lot about the straight lines uh, in the, those parts of the world. Right. Now, this organization, it's, it's, 
comprised mostly of veterans, almost exclusively of veterans at Veterans in Crisis? Actually, I was only the second veteran to join the board. Oh, okay. We now have four veterans on the board. Right. But we were largely comprised of uh, individuals in our community who respected uh, veterans, who saw a need in the community. Right. So to you, for your role, how important is it, aside from them being golf buddies, is it to have a more eclectic board? Well, I think... Right. Well, because I had a question down the line, and you touched on it. Is it a foregone conclusion that a veteran will ask for help? No, I mean... So we want to be able to assist them in a way that exactly to do that and preserve that so what's your day to day like? looking for partners in terms of being able to develop the capital we need to serve those veterans and continuing to work within the community between the local veterans affairs, the medical community. Uh, one of the big challenges, of course, is that veterans find themselves you know, dealing with varying levels of mental illness. And so uh, a lot of the veterans that we encounter will come to us through referrals through our local veterans clinic. And so we have to manage their privacy when we do that as well. That's the big thing for me is to be having my ear to the ground and making sure I'm networking so that we can identify those veterans. Right. So creating partnerships yeah, creating, also that yeah. help. So you touched on it, but what at present right now are some of the biggest challenges facing veterans in our area? Well, in large part, they're the same things that face most Americans in rural America. You know, they get very far away from that safety net that is there for them. So when you get outside of the larger cities, you find that it's more difficult to have access to the kinds of resources that are otherwise available to Americans. You know, one of the things that we notice is that the United Way 
has a category that they refer to as ALICE. That is an acronym, and it stands for Asset Limited, Income Constrained, and Employed. And that can mean a family that's living well above the poverty line. They could have a household income of eighty to ninety thousand dollars a year, but they still face a daily challenge where a four hundred dollar unexpected expense is going to break their that's budget. A challenge. Yeah. It's going to be you know. So if the transmission goes out, you've got a household where the mother and father both work, the kids go to school, one of the cars breaks down, one of them can't get to work, and now suddenly we can't make the mortgage this month, and we're going to have to make some difficult decisions. Right. And so those Alice families are the ones where we find a lot of veterans living. For example, Vietnam veterans today that are aging into their early to mid-70s are finding that cost of living increases are outpacing their ability, you know, whether it's what they had saved up for retirement, right. their social security, what little disability they might have coming in the door. So with that cost of living outpacing their benefits, they're getting really stretched. Do you have that demographic in the workforce right now? Is some of that demographic in the workforce? Or are they forced to return to the workforce? Well, you're seeing Vietnam veterans really being forced out of the work. They're aging out of the workforce. I mean, even if they're beyond, they're well beyond social security retirement age at this point. Um, um, but many of them, I, mean, I talked to a gentleman the other day who is on Social Security disability. He re- receives his basic Social Security check. Um, he has a very small pension from the state because he was a, a state worker, a corrections officer, in fact, many years ago. Today, he works to repair small engines for cash, lawnmowers, snowblowers, and that allows him to just make ends meet. But, uh, you know, his wife just got diagnosed with stage four cancer. So they're facing some challenges with the family about right. their ability. And, and the way the system's set up, they're probably going to lose their home before he's going to be able to get her any real medical assistance. So, I mean, that's a terrible story. In an environment that we're in where employers are desperately looking for workers, is this a workforce that can be tapped into? Or because you said they're aging out, is that not something that's feasible right now? I don't think that for the older veterans, that's going to be a reasonable option for them. Now, there's another group of veterans that we're going to have to continue to focus on. That is the younger age set, primarily the Cold War era veterans. Sure. You know, a lot of people don't recognize that when the Veterans Administration in the United States talks about war era veterans, they look at the Vietnam era as up to 1974. And then the the modern era veterans don't start until 1991, which is the Gulf era. Right. So the Veterans Administration in the United States does not view Cold War era veterans as wartime veterans. So if you sat in a missile silo in Idaho waiting on the order to turn your key, you're not a wartime veteran. If you loaded uh, B-52 bombers out of, uh, you know, Kinchlow Air Base, you know, which is a Supreme Air Command, Strategic Air Command, rather, base during the Cold War, you're not considered a wartime veteran. And they're starting to age into the category right now where they need help. And then, you know, our younger veterans today are going to, we believe we're going to face a mental health crisis in uh, 20 to 30 years. And so we need to be able to keep them cared for and actively engaged in the workforce. So at this point, how large is the veteran community in northern Michigan, and how has that changed over the last five years? Has it increased, decreased, neutral? The the, the veteran population has stayed relatively steady only because uh, with World War II veterans have been dying 
at about the rate that post 9/11 era veterans have been leaving service and coming to the area. Wow. With that said, though, you know, in the United States, you have a little under one percent of our total population has served, but in northern Michigan and the UP, it's nearly one in ten individuals over the age of 18 is a veteran. Wow. Does it provide assistance to healthcare? Like we, uh, getting we to health yeah, healthcare at least? We can help to refer them to the Veterans Administration Healthcare oh, Network. Oh, well, I'm, I, I'm thinking more along the lines of like physically getting there. Well, yeah, there are a few organizations out there that do provide direct assistance in that way. And we work with a lot of those organizations. The Disabled American Veterans does provide rides. They have a ride program okay. to help provide access for veterans to get to gotcha. VA healthcare facilities. And that's an well, important cause, piece. Because I know up here it's it's quite a distance, but in the UP it's even worse. that They don't even go to Michigan Unless that's changed, last I knew, they have to go to Milwaukee. In the Upper Peninsula, it depends on what where you yeah. got to go. I mean, they do have a VA hospital in Iron Mountain, but okay. it does depend on what kind of healthcare you need, and you know, so if it's you know orthopedic surgery. And so I, I know that that's like a whole another story, just a whole healthcare system with the VA. But like, I was just thinking as far as like being able to like physically get there, like when you're saying veterans losing a, a vehicle, couples losing a vehicle. That is one of the biggest challenges for veterans in a rural area is to be able to access uh, healthcare, veteran specific healthcare for certain. So that's been one of the biggest challenges that we're seeing. But, you know, one of the things that Veterans in Crisis really focuses on is to help cover the gap. You know, when you're facing a, a, an emergent crisis that you and you need help right now, you know, we're very right. much focused on getting help within 24 hours. We're always happy to work with the other agencies to do referrals and get someone into the VA healthcare network or in the VA claims network if they need the help doing that. But, you know, where we've seen the real need is when your hot water heater goes out. Okay. Yeah. And you've got nowhere else to turn. And we're able to turn around the cash that an individual would need to be able to replace that hot water heater within a couple of days. And do you have special partnerships that gets them service any faster? Because I know there's issues with that here in general. Is, are those the kind of partnerships you try to strive for as well? We do have those kinds of relationships. You know, one of the things that we've most recently done is formed a partnership with the uh, Michigan Freemasons. And the Masons have individuals all over the state of Michigan. So when we know we have a veteran in a county that's some distance away that has a hole in their roof and they need it repaired, and we can come up with the money for the materials to get it done, but finding three guys to show up and fix the roof is a challenge. Right. And the Freemasons are, are able to nice. do that. You know, they have a lodge. They have two lodges in every county in northern right. Michigan. So they're able to get someone even to some of these more remote areas. And you can demystify the Freemasons. They, they don't do magic rituals or anything. They're a great organization that helps so far you help as your I know, veterans. You know, it's been great. I mean, they, 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 wear, uh, they wear tuxedos a lot. But, That's uh, great. Show up at the work site. I think you tuxedo. dress for the job you want, right? <laughs> so how is the organization funded? And has that been a challenge in the last year and a half? 
Well, it's been somewhat of a challenge for us, but we haven't found a fall off in our ability to provide the support. Uh, the community has been really helpful. We've got a number of family foundations in the area. Um, the Biederman Family Foundation is one up here uh, that has really helped out, stepped forward and helped out. We've got some others that we're, we're definitely leaning on. And uh, our community has uh, a large group of philanthropists who have stepped forward and uh, have kept us where we need to be financially. But as we continue to grow, we're always looking to, to broaden that capital base. That's incredible. And this is not meant to be a tough question, but how would you grade Northern Michigan in its treatment of veterans? And are there other areas or states that you aspire to that really do this well? You know, I, I will take this from a personal perspective because, you know, you do see and, and a lot of veterans – will recognize the fact that we get a lot of this thank you for your service stuff that, you know, we don't want to take for granted. I know that my dad's generation, my dad's a Vietnam veteran, and they didn't experience that at all. And so it's always great to have this conspicuous appreciation for what it is that you do. But I think as Americans, it's also really important for us to recognize that, you know, the rent's going to come due uh, down the road here. When, when we take, you know, undertake this effort where we send our American, you know, our, our blood and treasure off to war for decades. The cost is not just the upfront cost. You know, over the long term, there are going to be costs, you know, to our nation uh, that we're going to have to pay for for many years to come. So we can't look away. We got to make sure this remains a priority for us. And this is particularly true as we leave Afghanistan, as we reduce our footprint in places overseas and Americans begin to feel like we're once again a peacetime nation. You know, we've got millions and millions of veterans out there who have served this country over the last couple of decades and that we're going to need to continue to take care of them over the long term. One of the things that I always point out, you know, 30,000 Afghanistan veterans deployed five or more times. So what we were doing is that we were, you know, we were driving on the same tires, so to speak, right. you know, for, for mile after mile after mile. Uh, to the and, listeners, uh, what, what, is there an average? I don't know what the average is. It's, it's somewhere, you know, most Afghanistan veterans deployed more than once to Afghanistan. And so what we see today by comparison uh, when we talk about veteran suicide rates being 22 suicides a day in the United States, the most at-risk population are Vietnam veterans. And 22 so, a day. 22 that, a day. I think bears repeating. Overall, 22 a day. And, you know, with 22 veterans taking their lives every day and Vietnam veterans being most at risk, and then you have a population of several million post-9-11 veterans, I think that if you look at the timeline over the next couple of decades, we should be very focused on the fact that basic life challenges that everybody faces. And these are the types of things that, you know, at some point in your life, no matter who you are, if, if, if you're not very lucky for most people, you're going to encounter crisis. You're going to lose somebody very close to you, somebody very important to you. You're going to go through a very difficult divorce. Uh, you're going to confront challenges with your children. You're going to get fired from a job. You're going to face something. And uh, for a veteran 
who's vulnerable, that can be even more significant crisis. Right. That can become a mental health crisis, can become a life-threatening crisis. Right. And so we always want to make sure, that's one of the reasons why we're focused on addressing these things where, you know, if we've got a veteran who doesn't have a fi- enough firewood to heat their house in the winter, we want to address that issue as quickly as we can right. uh, because that can become a, a you know, yeah. life-threatening crisis. With COVID, there's obviously... Many more. There's statistics about this all over about you know instances of increase of depression, anxiety, substance abuse, all this kind of thing that are happening to to everybody on the planet. Is that a threat to the services for veterans because of the additional people who may have not you know not needed these services before but need them now? Well, we're understanding. We're we're growing to understand much more about mental health um, and the impact that that this service and the past couple of decades of service has had on our veterans. We always have to recognize, and most folks in law enforcement and public health will tell you, that when you're dealing with mental health, you're also dealing with addiction and homelessness. Those Mm -hmm. three things almost always go together. And so we have to confront those challenges. And yes, our veterans are at greater risk for facing those kinds of challenges. With the additional pressure of what's happening the last year and a half. Well, I think, you know, COVID puts pressures on, you know, individuals, uh, whether it's job, you know, your vocation, uh, being able to earn, your housing security, your overall mental health, you know, what just your day-to-day interactions are with people. I think we all have felt some degree of mental health challenges over the course of this. You mentioned, and I've known you for a while, and this is a part of your life that I'm particularly fascinated about, but you've Worked on films as a consultant, and specifically one film that concerns this issue. Does Hollywood tend to get it right, or do you not really follow it too closely? You know, the veteran crisis, the veteran plight. Well, Hollywood, you know, Hollywood's not a monolith. Uh, You know, filmmakers all vary in what it is they want to accomplish. Uh, Different performers bring different things to a particular role. One of the things I love about filmmaking in general is the collaborative process, and you could have a screenplay that really isn't very good and it'll get made, <laughs> uh, which is always a massive, a huge frustration for me because I see really awful screenplays get made and really amazing screenplays that just float around Hollywood for a decade, um, never get made. But, you know, overall with the collaborative effort, I think that you're going to get all kinds of interpretations factoring into a film. And so you can't necessarily expect a film to get something especially right, even if it's veterans working on it, because, you know, veterans aren't monoliths. All of our experiences right. are different. You know, I always go back to the fact that, you know, we all see different things and we all, as veterans, we all see different things in entertainment and our views are colored by our own experiences. So my you know, theory on this is we have a tendency to enjoy things that are outside of our own genre, right. so to speak, our right. own experienced genre. So there are things that uh, I really liked that my dad's generation didn't. I mean, Marines of my generation love Full Metal Jacket. Uh, right. Vietnam era Marines hate it. <laughs> um, you know, most Vietnam era veterans that I know loved MASH. Sure. <laughs> you know, most uh, Korean era veterans right. hated it. Right. You know, so you can see things that you enjoy. You can see what you're reflected in, but maybe sometimes you just don't want it to hit too close to home. Right. Very, I've seen very few Iraq or Afghanistan era 
pictures that have gotten it right. Um, that's my experience. And even those films that I've been able to work on, you know, I've struggled. If they get it wrong, is it harmful? You know, I would put this in perspective. You know, American Sniper is one of the films that I worked on. And probably in terms of, you know, blood and sweat, one of the things that I put the most into to, for the perspective of to try to get what I could write. I mean, the, sub, the source material on that was one man's perspective on his service right. as interpreted by a filmmaker, a very talented actor, and a whole crew of individuals who was trying to bring that story to life. But I think that, you know, overall you get out of those experiences what you take into it. That's the probably the best you can hope for in a war film. Right, or absolutely. Film. Did a great job. So looking at the veterans, you've mentioned families. Do you provide services or help with what the families may be struggling with as well? Because you may have a veteran who's struggling, but they affect their sphere around them. Do you do family services, or is that something that's you know, outside the realm of uh, the scope of what Veterans in Crisis does. When we provide direct relief to a veteran, we're not giving that veteran cash. We don't write a check to a veteran. We almost always will work to make a payment to a vendor, a landlord, uh, anything like that, uh, a contractor. So, you know, anyone in that veteran's immediate world is almost always impacted by it. And most yeah. of the veterans that we end up helping, they find themselves in need because they are working to provide for their families. Right. So we most certainly do that. One of the programs I'm proudest of right now is that we're working very closely with our district court. And there are several dozen district courts in Michigan who have the same program, and that's a veterans treatment court program. And what that allows the local court to do is that if a prosecutor has a veteran who has uh, been charged with a crime that they feel is directly related to um, something specific to the veteran experience, whether it's uh, a level of addiction or mental illness or just violence that's directly connected to post-traumatic stress or some other aspect of, of service, then they will put them in a program or work to put them in a program that can uh, reduce their sentence if they pursue treatment. Sure. And we, we'd like to see them continue to do that. A lot of courts do this. They call it a drug court or sobriety court. It's for those who find themselves uh, chronically in front of a judge because of addiction. Right. And the usually, if the court, that is the judge and the administrators and prosecutors, are able to provide them a way out, that is to say supervised treatment, and they complete a certain course of treatment over a period of time and thereby are able to avoid a felony conviction as a consequence. Right. Of it. Well, then we're all for that. Oh, that's great. So we want, and we want to do that too. We'd like to see, we'd like to move that down to the misdemeanor level too. Sure. Um, because, you know, we don't want an individual have to get to the point where they're facing a felony. Yeah. In the state of Michigan, your third DUI is a felony. Uh, we don't we don't want to have to wait to the point. You right. know, if you are in court in front of a judge because you've been behind the wheel under the influence, uh, we shouldn't have to wait for your third strike to get there. Um, you might have a problem. Yeah. You know. So yeah. if if you if the judge can look at you and say, you know, do do you think you have a problem with alcohol? Is this problem related to you know post traumatic stress injury? Um, then let's get you help. And if they can do that, even at the earliest level, then I think that we have a we have right. an opportunity there. And I, I wouldn't, you know, 
philosophically, everyone probably is saying, you know, well, geez, that shouldn't just be veterans. No, it shouldn't just be veterans. But one of the things that we do offer is that veterans have specific access to types of treatment, uh, particularly when it relates to post-traumatic stress. So if we can get us, if we're in a situation where the judge can say your addiction, your substance abuse is directly related to this disorder, this issue, your service, and you have access to these treatment, then we're going to take you and focus on getting you help. Right. Well, speaking of nomenclature, because this is an old stand-up routine, but you've said post-traumatic stress. And... Many, many years ago, that was called shell shock. What are your thoughts on, is there a softening of the language that relates to the the stress and trauma that veterans have experienced? I'm not saying we should go back to the old ways, but are, are we still speaking about this and the seriousness that it deserves? I think the most important thing about the injury is destigmatizing it. And so that's where the language becomes very important, is to be able to destigmatize it. And I've seen the services, you know, in my own experience, the Marine Corps, but in general, the services have done a very good job of working to destigmatize the stress injury and allowing veterans the opportunity to seek treatment. The best way I can describe it is it's like breaking a bone. You know, if you suffer an injury, your leg gets broken that we take you to a hospital and we put a cast on your leg and, and you're given treatment in a little bit of time and after a while your leg heals. And it's pretty much as good as new. You're going to walk around on it. It might bother you on a cold, rainy day from time to time. And if a doctor were to look at it on an x-ray, he might be able to tell it was broken. But otherwise, because you've sought treatment at the earliest stage of injury, you're, you're good. You're taken care of. We need to treat health from the neck up the same way we treat health from the neck down. And so when an individual experiences a traumatic incident, depending on their own personal experience going into that, they may experience varying levels of injury in that stressful moment. If they are in, experience a traumatic stress injury and they don't receive treatment, you know, we take it back to that broken leg analogy. If you break your leg and you don't receive treatment, it's going to hurt. It's going to bother you. You're going to have a limp for the rest of your life. And now compound that. Uh, you have a traumatic stress injury. You break that leg. And now I send you back. You know, if you go skiing on a broken leg, you're going to really mess it up. Yeah. You know, so and then next thing you know, you're going to be crippled. And before long, we might have to cut it off. And, you know, you're going to be permanently disabled for the rest of your life. We don't want to let it get that far. So that's where I think post-traumatic stress injury is a good way to have a conversation about the mental health impacts of traumatic stress. Wow. I've never heard it put so well, to be honest. You mentioned homelessness. How serious of an issue is that with the veteran population in northern Michigan? We do see it here in this local community at pretty significant levels. I don't know that we can yet quantify how many of our veterans are homeless. One of the biggest challenges that we have within our homeless population is really establishing bona fide veteran status can be difficult uh, because of an individual may not have records, right. they may not have access to, you know, they may not even know their social security number. Well, we, we just dealt with a case the other day where we had an individual who was living in his truck, disabled veteran, uh, had a service dog, 
Um, so at some point he had been able to get access to a service dog for companionship because of his post-traumatic stress, but he was homeless. Because he was homeless and had a dog, he couldn't get into a shelter because the shelter won't allow the pet. Mm-hmm. And so that compounds the issue. He's living in his car. Uh, the car is now broken down. And so he's really struggling. Yeah. Uh, and then we get into the details of it. And we found out that he was discharged from the army under punitive circumstances. That oh, means sure. you know he had he had gotten himself in trouble. We're unable to, at that point to help him right. because we don't have access to the resources. Uh, he doesn't have access to resources. The best thing that we can do. Um, and in this case, we did is we worked to connect him with a group of attorneys in lower Michigan who focus full time on working to rehabilitate an individual's discharge so that if they have a discharge that was related to misconduct and that sure. misconduct was connected to post-traumatic stress, then they like can you said, work to rehabilitate right. that. And once they get them re- rehabilitated in terms of their discharge, they have access to more resources right. and so we can get them back on that right. road. But, uh, you know, homelessness is a wicked problem. Um, like I said, it's, it's usually, if they're homeless, it's, it's compounded by mental illness or, and or addiction. Yeah. How does the organization, just for the listeners, classify a veteran? Because is it just the military? For our purposes, anyone who was honorably discharged or retired from any of the armed forces, that is the five armed, well, there are six now. We've not encountered <laughs> a Space uh, Force, not encountered Space Force <laughs> veteran, and I won't get into that. But, um, you know, up to that point, five services, that is uh, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and Coast Guard. Okay. Uh, we also address veterans who are uh, retired from the National Guard. Any veteran who, is, who has been in the National Guard and has served on active duty that is under Title X orders that is in service of a national emergency is considered a veteran for our purposes. Excellent. Are there any ways you help veterans that would be surprising for listeners to hear? Because you talked about financial, you talked about mental health. Anything else that comes up that is a unique challenge that you found? Well, you know, it goes from one end of the spectrum to the other. This last winter, we had a Navy veteran who heated her house with wood. And if you don't live in northern Michigan, you're like, why can't people still heat their houses with wood? But they do. It's, you know, there's a furnace that's in a small house that's attached to the big house, and, and they use wood pellets in that furnace and forced air from that. And uh, that furnace had gone out, and she had depleted her savings in getting a new furnace and was at a point where she didn't have enough money to buy pellets to get her through the winter. So for, you know, a few hundred dollars, we were able to go purchase pellets that are going to allow, the wood pellets that would allow her to heat the house. So that's one end of the spectrum. At the other end, you know, we have veterans who are going here to school at Northwestern Michigan College, which has an aviation program. Uh, The aviation program here, they're able to use their post 9-11 GI Bill benefits to get their pilot's license. Mm -hmm. However, if you want to go to work for an airline, contract air carrier that services United or Delta, um, there's a lot of things you have to do just beyond getting your pilot's license. You know, you have to have your first class certification under these certain qualifications. uh, And what it essentially means is it requires a lot of flight hours. And as a student aviator, you got to pay for those flight hours. Costs money. And even with the GI Bill, you'll quickly exhaust that. You know, so we just wrote NMC uh, a check for $4,000. In the case of one veteran, we'll probably go another six to eight grand just to get him to the point where he can write, he can apply to Delta. 
Wow. So, but you know, the way we look at it is if we want, you know, individuals flying those short, short haul aircraft, we'd like to make sure that we have veterans right. you know, getting the opportunity. That's what that. I was thinking about continuing education. Is that something you support? That's Absolutely. extraordinary. How can listeners support veterans in crisis? Veteransincrisis.org will tell you everything you need to know about our organization. The one thing you won't find there is any cases or stories about some things that we did because we don't exploit our veterans in that way. But we will talk about the need and what we do. Uh, there's ways to donate on that page as well. So if you feel like you want to contribute to our mission here, veteransincrisis.org is the place to go. And is there a specific section that just an ordinary person can go to help support the cause? Absolutely. I mean, just click on the donate section and it'll take you right there. So And the, the golf event. Is that going to happen sometime again soon? We are. We actually had our golf tournament uh, oh, wow. in September of last year under restrictions. Uh, we normally would have a cigar <laughs> a cigar dinner afterwards. That didn't happen this year. It was box lunches, uh, really good box lunches <laughs> prepared by the chef at the golf course that went out to the carts. But yeah, this year our golf courses our, our golf tournament's going to go ahead as planned on That's September twenty second. So. Excellent. And is that close to the public, or can people sign up? That to is do- open. I mean, that is open to the first, uh, I think it's 86 golfers uh, sign up. Okay. Anyone who wants to golf, it's at uh, Lock and Heath Golf Course, which is a a beautiful location in northern Michigan overlooking uh, East Grand Traverse Bay. Do you have to be good to golf in this golf tournament? Oh, you you looking for a partner, Ryan? What if you're a hack? Not a hack. No, you can. Is be it okay? A, any hack? level? I, you probably are not <laughs> going to win uh, the car. There's a there's a uh, <laughs> oh. there, there is a car I think uh, for the uh, hole in one competition. So sweet, hacks that could happen lucky sometimes too. That's true. I, I find that maybe those are the ones who hit the holes in ones most. Veteransincrisis.org again is the website. And is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners about what you do, what your mission is? Well, I think it's just important for for everyone to remember that service goes beyond just uh, time an individual spends in uniform. And I think that every veteran's always looking for the opportunity to give back to their community. So for us, this is how we give it back to our community. And this is how we hope to create more opportunities for veterans to continue to do that as well. That's amazing. Thank you so much for being here, Matt. Thank you so much for your pursuits. And to all those who pursue along with you, helping Northern Michigan's veterans in need, all of them, And to our listeners, thank you for listening, and thank you for pursuing the positive. Hey, thanks for tuning in with us at the Pursuit of Podcast. Uh, One more time, Veterans in Crisis. That's veteransincrisis.org. Rapid response to local veterans in crisis. Also want to give a big shout-out to our supporters, the Tin Lid Hat Company, tinlidco.com use promo code the pursuit of for 40% off to our listeners and for general inquiries podcasting production video production newleonard.com